pray together. Father, as we come before worship and as we come before your word, Lord, uh, we recognize just how much we need you. Father, I recognize that I need your presence. We recognize that we need your presence. We need you to open our eyes, to see your beauty, to see the beauty of your word, to see the beauty of your working in our lives. Father, we pray to that end, and we lift it all in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Well, this is our, this is our first uh, city church service of the new year. It still sounds bizarre to say 2014 in some ways. But anytime there's uh, New Year's, there's two things that tend to happen a lot, I've noticed over the years. One is a lot of people like to make these things called New Year's resolutions. And I don't know whether you are one of those people that like to make New Year's resolutions, but essentially what they are is they are promises that we make to ourselves and others of things that we would like to change or habits that we would like to assume in the New Year. And if you're like me, some of those promises, some of those resolutions will stick and others won't. We'll get a couple weeks into the year and all of a sudden the things that we promised ourselves that we would or wouldn't do tend to kind of fall by the wayside. And this inevitable gap between the words or the promises that we make to ourselves and the reality begins to open. This big gap between our words and our promises and our actual reality. And we get frustrated. We get downcast. We get upset about it because we hate that gap. We hate the gap between words and reality. We hate when they become different, when they become incongruous. We don't like it in ourselves and we don't like it in other people either. The other thing I've noticed that we like to do a lot of times in, in, at the end of a year is reflect on what passed the year before. And a lot of media guides and newspapers and, and television shows like to do this. And they do these top 10 lists or top 25 lists, you know, top 25 lists of uh, best songs that happened in 2013 or top 25 most influential events that happened in 2013, top 25 most hated people in 2013, or top 25, you know, most notable deaths or anything. And I saw that one just this week. I saw what were the top 25 most notable deaths of 2013. And what was interesting is one of the deaths that made that list was a guy named Harold Camping. I don't know if you ever heard of Harold Camping before. But Harold Camping postured himself as a preacher and a radio personality but what he did is, in, the, in I think it was the early ni- 1990s, he claimed and taught that Christ would return again in September of 1994. He got lots of followers, lots of people followed him, and then September 1994 came and went and realized, and he realized that it wasn't true. So he changed his tune and he said, well, God's going to come back again now in May of 2011. I guess he'd done his math wrong the first time around, and now God was going to come back in May of 2011. But of course, May of 2011 came, and it went, and Christ didn't come back. Now, largely, Harold Camping became marginalized and pushed to the center as kind of a crazy man because of what he taught. Why? Because we can't stand it when the reality of things just don't match with the words that are coming out of our mouths. 
One of the most significant events that happened in 2013 happened at Nelson Mandela's funeral. I don't know if you heard about this. But at Nelson Mandela's funeral, President Obama had prepared uh, just a a wonderful speech uh, to honor uh, President Mandela. And he gets up and he begins delivering his speech, but what, what he discovered was that there was a man standing beside him that was reinterpreting his speech in sign language so that anyone who was deaf in the audience uh, could understand what President Obama, Obama was speaking about. But many people who were in the know all of a sudden realized that this man was actually only signing gibberish. He actually didn't know sign language at all, and he was just kind of motioning all over the place. And everybody kind of laughed and chuckled about it. But what we didn't like about it is the fact that the words didn't match up with the reality. Just think of that famous uh, interview that happened with Lance Armstrong uh, in Oprah Winfrey. Uh, I think it was in January when all that happened. Of course, we've all heard of Lance Armstrong, the seven-time Tours de France winner, who claimed vehemently all throughout his victories that he didn't use performance-enhancing drugs in order to make these accomplishments. Of course, then the truth comes out, and everybody kind of piles on Lance because his words didn't match his reality. And we watched that interview that he had with Oprah where it still didn't seem like he was being forthright with what he was saying. It still didn't seem like his words were matching up with the reality. And we loathe it when we see it in other people, and we loathe it in ourselves. When we see a discrepancy between our behavior and our reality, and the words that we say, and the words that come out of our mouth. This idea is the theme of the book of James, the gap that exists sometimes between our words and our behavior, between our faith that we claim to have, and the deeds and works of our lives. You know, the book of James is it's, it's a powerful book. It's a relatively short book tucked in the back of the New Testament, And uh, it was written by, most people believe it was written by James, who was Jesus' half-brother. Most people don't realize that Mary and Joseph, after they had Jesus, then went on to have several children of themselves. They had four sons and several daughters. And James, I believe, was the eldest of the sons that uh, Mary and Joseph had after Jesus was born. By and large, most of Jesus' half-siblings rejected him. I mean, wouldn't you too, right, when you think about it? Your older brother is claiming that he is God. You're like, wait, this doesn't seem right. And that's what, that was James. He, he, didn't, he, he looked at his older brother, Jesus, and he said, this, this can't be true. This can't be God. But what history tells us is that James, actually, he witnessed, after he witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was converted. He was converted so powerfully that he actually became one of the most significant and substantial leaders in, in, the, in this new church that was about to be born. He became uh, the bishop of Jerusalem uh, years after Christ's resurrection. And uh, sadly, he was martyred in A.D. 62. But before he was martyred, he wrote this very powerful epistle, this very powerful letter of the book of James. And what makes it unique is that it's one of the most concrete books of the Bible. You read a lot of things in the Bible, and some things seem to be very abstract. Some things seem to be very concrete. Well, James is one of the most concrete books of the entire New Testament. And it kind of reads like this meandering sermon that James is speaking about. But in it, James wants us to see very concretely that what true faith in Jesus Christ really looks like. 
He wants us to see what true faith is over and against faith that is false. And what I'd like to do very quickly this morning is look at four things the passage tells us about what the nature of true faith really is and what it really looks like. This week, this week I'd like to, to view it kind of in a broad lens and then in the next couple of weeks really zero in on some of the aspects that James says about what true faith really looks like. But the first thing he wants us to see is that God's Word, His Word, the Bible, is the path to life and the path to human flourishing. Verse 25 that we read before says this, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Uh, as many of you know, I've, I have three little kids, and we're just coming off of Christmas. So we've, our, our boys especially got tons and tons of presents that involve instructions, uh, some of which we haven't even got to yet. We're still kind of opening some every day, but it, they like to build things, they like to construct things, so all these things come with all sorts of pieces, and you have to build them, and you have to construct them. Some come with instructions that are really helpful, Other come, others come with instructions that aren't so helpful. Now, by no means do I want to equate or boil the scriptures down to a list of instructions or to some sort of glorified owner's manual. The Bible is so much more than that. It's a beautiful narrative with all sorts of pictures and beauty as it powerfully and truly tells us the story of redemption. But in some ways, it does include instructions for us about the nature of life. One of my oldest sons has really gotten into puzzles. And anytime time, we've all made puzzles before, you open it up and you see this picture of what the ideal is, but you have all these pieces. You kind of have to keep referencing this picture of the ideal in order to fit and put those pieces together the way they were intended and the way they were made to work. One component of the scripture tells us what this thing called life really ought to look like. It defines for us what it means to be a human being and what it means to flourish in life. The commands of Scripture spell it out very concretely for us, but the narratives also demonstrate beautifully and artistically what this life ought to look like or what it is like to live a life that is actually flourishing. James K.A. Smith, who's an, an author, wrote a really powerful book, and I forget the title of it now. But what it says is most of us are driven by our desires more than anything else, and one of the most strong and powerful desires that each and every one of us has is to live a life that truly flourishes. You can call it the good life. You can call it the best life. Whatever it is, we want to live a life that truly flourishes, that is beautiful, that lives up to its potential, a life that knows its purpose and lives accordingly. But the truth is, and this is what James wants us to see, that we seek for human flourishing often in all sorts of other avenues in life. It says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The words that are translated here, looks at himself, have much more of a powerful connotation than what we initially realize when we look at it. What they are trying to help communicate and what they mean is far more than just perceiving our face or perceiving an image. They bear the idea that when we look at the scriptures, we see the essence of what it means to be a human being, yet we turn away and we forget it almost instantly. And what we do is we chase after all these other definitions of what it means to be human and what it means to have a life that is flourishing. Ronald Rollheiser is an author and teacher, and he wrote this really interesting and powerful book called The Holy Longing. And he kind of agrees with what James says, is that we are all in a desperate search to find the good life. We're all in a desperate search to find life that is truly flourishing, but we go about it in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different avenues. One of the illustrations that he does is he he compares the life of Mother Teresa, Janis Joplin, and Princess Diana. He says Mother Teresa defined human flourishing by discipline and solidarity with the poor. He said Janis Joplin defined life very different. She defined it by sex, drugs, rock and roll to its pure excess. And then he says Princess Diana kind of went about it in a combination of the two. On one hand, she defined life by solidarity with the poor. And on the other hand, she defined it by Mediterranean vacations. It's an interesting illustration because it points to the fact that all three of these individuals were all looking for the same thing. They were looking for the good life. They were looking to to find human flourishing, but they went down very different and very unique paths in order to find it. There is no shortage of messages that exist in our world about the path to human flourishing or the good life. Advertisers will tell you that all you have to do is lose a few more pounds or buy this product and you will achieve the good life. The American dream tells you that flourishing is all about white picket fences, a dog, and 2.5 children. Corporate America will tell you that the good life is all about that next promotion. If you get that next promotion, then you will achieve the good life. What James is saying here is that we peer into the scriptures which contain the very words of life for us and yet we immediately forget them. And we look for human flourishing. We look for the good life in lesser things. We embrace alternative paths. You know, the reality is it's our sin and it's our rebellion that does this. We believe some sort of lie that exists that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy who wants to take away all our fun and all our enjoyment in life when the reality is that what he is doing is outlining what true life really is all about and the way it was intended from the very beginning. What James also wants us to see is that this this idea of faith has an integral element in our pursuit of the good life or human flourishing. He says the path of faith actually recognizes that God is the only true source 
of the good life, the only true source of eternal life, the only true source of human flourishing. You know, the idea of faith, we talk about it a lot in church. We do. We throw that word around. We say it all the time. But sometimes defining that idea of faith can be really very difficult and really challenging. In its essence, though, if you boil it down in some ways to its most simplest form, in its essence, faith recognizes that life is found in God and in God alone and not in any other lesser thing. Faith is all about trusting in what God says about life rather than trusting in what we can figure out about our own lives or trusting in alternative methods to figure out life. It's recognizing that in our sin, we run after and run down other paths in order to define life. We run from God in order to try to do it our own way. And faith is all about returning to God. It's about recognizing our sinfulness. It's about recognizing the forgiveness that we can receive in Jesus Christ. The the forgiveness that we can't find in any other path. It's about recognizing that Christ sacrificed himself on our behalf to make a restored relationship possible with him. Ultimately, faith is a free gift from God. It is a posture in which we receive from God that in which we, we, the, the very things that we most need. It isn't something we earn. It's God's free gift to us. And this is what James wants us to see. It's, he wants us to see what the essence of this faith is. But he also wants us to see what the effect of this faith looks like in a life. Because the last point that James wants us to see is this. True faith in God works itself out in our behavior. True faith in God works itself out in what we do. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is where some people have gotten really uncomfortable with the book of James. Uh, Martin Luther, who was uh, a, a famous reformer in the history of the church, called James a straw epistle, or a second-class book that may or may not belong in the Bible. In some ways, it's been, become very controversial. And here's why. One of the most uh, essential things that we believe about the nature of faith is that faith is a gift from God. And it is only through that gift from God that we can be made right from him. It's not faith plus anything else. It is purely by God's grace. It is purely a gift from him. The Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Our faith, Paul teaches us, is purely a gift from God. It has nothing to do with our initiative and our efforts. The Bible is very clear that all of our efforts are completely tainted by sin. So there's nothing that we could actually do to merit God's favor. There's nothing that we could do to make him love us or to earn our salvation. It purely comes by faith through grace. But then people read the book of James. And they read what appears James to be saying 
that faith apart from works is dead. It's as if Paul is saying you're saved by grace alone, but James is saying you are saved by grace plus works. Is James actually saying that we are saved by a combination of our works and God's grace? I don't think so. Because in actuality, both Paul and James are getting at this nature of faith, but they are coming at it from two very different angles. You see, Paul battled legalism. Legalism taught that we can earn our way back to God. We can, we can by our own stripes, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and earn our way back to God. And it's why Paul so powerfully taught, no, we can't. We are completely unable to earn our way back to God. But James battled something very different. He battled what one commentator called quietism. And what quietism teaches is that we can have faith in God that doesn't at all affect how we think and what we do. It sees faith in God purely as some sort of cognitive or ethereal thing that we embrace that has very little effect on our lives whatsoever. And it's why James comes in and says very powerfully, if you believe in God, good. The demons believe in that too. James is saying it's not just about this ethereal cognitive thing that you have to grasp. But it's something that profoundly affects your behavior. It profoundly affects what you do. And I think by and large his message is very powerful in our culture today. Because even today, if you look at the statistics, around 87% of people still believe in God. They believe in a real and actual God who exists. But most people, at least in my experience, don't experience what we would call saving faith. Why? Because they believe that their faith is just, has, can only has to be this kind of cognitive, ethereal thing that has no bearing on their lives whatsoever. You see, James is concerned about the demonstration of our faith. Paul was concerned about the declaration of our faith, the fact that we receive God's free gift of grace and that changes us and we are declared righteous in God's eyes. What James is concerned about is very different. He agrees fully with Paul, but he's concerned with something very different and that is what does this true faith look like tangibly in a life lived by faith. You know, I've had, I've had many people over the years uh, that, have, that have gone to churches or, or been in ministry that I've done that, that come to me and ask whether they really have it. Do I really have faith that will save me? Do I have what it takes to be in a relationship with God? And they'll ask me very honestly, how do I know? And that's where the book of James becomes so valuable. Because what James tells us is that he tells us how to answer that question. Because what he tells us is if we really do have this thing called true faith in Jesus Christ, then we will begin to see its effects very powerfully in our lives. In very physical and in very tangible ways. Because what James wants us to see is that when we come into a relationship with God, 
that it's so significant, it's so powerful, that it begins this work of changing our lives. For some people, it happens very miraculously, and it happens over, overnight. I've met certain people that came to faith in Jesus Christ, and it was like they changed that moment, and they were never the same. But for most of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, things change, but they often change gradually. What James is saying is, in true faith, you begin to gradually see that things change about your life. That you don't often think the way you once did. You don't always reason the way you once did. Your values as a person begin to change. Your, your longings in life begin to slowly change, and things begin to transform in your life. But what James is very clear about is that if there is no change whatsoever, then you have to question whether the faith is true. We have to ask ourselves, is our faith purely cognitive, or has it changed the way we live our lives? Has it changed the way we behave? Has it changed the way we act? Has it changed our words? Has it changed our behavior? Because each and every one of us would claim that something very significant has happened in our lives. But we also know, just practically from our lives, if something very significant happens to us, it changes our life. This is what James is saying about faith. It is the most substantial. It is the most significant thing that can happen to a life. It's so significant that a life cannot go back to the way it once was. Things begin to change. So where does that leave us? The question that James leaves us, we have to honestly ask ourselves as well. How has my faith, how has your faith How has your passion for Jesus Christ been demonstrated in your life? Do people sometimes inexplicably come up to you or approach you and wonder what makes you so different? Do they ask you, why did you react so differently in this situation than everybody else I know? That's evidence that true faith has taken root in your heart and in your life. Because true faith, what James talks about, has all sorts of effects. Those works are not the cause of our faith, but they are absolutely the effects of our faith. One of the things that I've noticed now in dating relationships, and dating relationships have certainly changed since I was a teenager, but one of the things in dating relationships that seems to be big now, that never used to be big, is the big moment when they say those three words for the first time, right? Those three words, I love you. Now, that used to be, and when I was growing up, it wasn't that big of a deal, but now it's like, you know, all the the girls call their girlfriends and the guys call their boyfriends and they say, well, he said it. Well, she said it. The three words, I love you. Well, the truth is we can say, I love you all the time till we are blue in the face. But if our conduct does not reflect love, then those words are very empty. You know, it's always remarkable about Christ's life, and especially his his crucifixion and his death, was his remarkable silence in the face of his accusers. 
If you read the end of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was brought to trial before this judge and that ruler. And what it continues to say is how silent Jesus was in those moments. And his silence led to his eventual execution on the cross. But what that cross does is it demonstrates the love that God has for you and I. More powerfully than any words Christ uttered, more powerfully than any teaching he taught, his work of redemption, his sacrifice himself, his deeds were the most powerful expression of his love for us. And when we truly experience his grace, when we truly experience his love, we cannot help but change. Friend, the question for you is the same question that exists for me. The same charge, the same command that James gives to you is the same command he gives to me. Don't just listen to God. Don't just let your faith be ethereal. Don't just let your faith be purely cognitive, but be a reader of the word and be a doer of the word and allow him to define life for you. And when you do, you will experience the joy that comes through true faith in him.